Take your Bibles with me, please, this evening and turn to Philippians 4. Last time we were together, which uh, admittedly was about a month ago on a Sunday evening, um, last time we were together, we considered the second of what I uh, have labeled, in a sense, the threefold solution to the problems of anxiety, fear, confusion, depression, anger, the problems of the mind. We first considered the solution through prayer, that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known unto God, and in turn, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keeps or guards our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Then last time we considered, secondly, the necessity of bringing our thoughts into captivity, of being the gatekeepers of our own minds, of intentionally bringing our thoughts captive and then submitting them to the obedience and lordship of Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge that at the time this is not an easy call, but that by God's grace it's absolutely something that can be done. Today we come to the final piece of this idea of the battle of the mind. I've stressed throughout the last two distinct but interrelated passages how the great enemy in each of these scenarios, the great enemy when Paul says, be careful for nothing, the great enemy in relation to that idea of keeping our, our minds captive, thinking on those things which are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report and those things that are, are virtuous and those things that are praiseworthy that the great enemy of these things is self. That it is selfishness, self-focus, even the completely twisted and worldly concept of self-love that most threatens to hold our minds and keep us mired in these, if we want to call them negative thoughts and feelings, these anxieties and these fears and these confusions and these depressions and these angers. We live in a society that is ever increasingly filled with more of what society has termed mental illness. And yet very much of this mental illness is in fact spiritual illness rooted in a society that has, be, has elevated the God of self to supreme. And we find thus in this self-focused, self-guided idea, a culture that becomes morally depraved, a culture that becomes mentally unstable, a culture that loses its frame of reference because its frame of reference does not extend beyond itself. And we need to be careful with this. We've spent three messages on it because it is very unlikely that the doctrine of self that pervades culture has not found its way into our hearts in some way, shape, or form. And so in this self-focused, self-gratifying, and licentious culture, we find fears and anxieties. We find anger. We find all of these attributes confusions and depressions, and we shouldn't expect anything different. But we should expect different results in ourselves. 
because we are not of the world, but we are of the Father. And this evening we come to the final element of note in our quest to understand how to find victory over these elements, these emotions, these feelings, these, these things which we wrestle with within our heart that strip us of our peace, that strip us of our joy. This evening we speak of contentment. Contentment is a state of being that lies down the road from both prayer and taking our thoughts into captivity. In many ways, it is the mental and spiritual promised land, if we want to call it that, of the Christian life. It is where all of the exhortations and efforts to reign in my own heart lead me. It's the place where I rest wholly under the power of the true and living God and so find myself able and willing to endure any context of life if only I have the utmost confidence in the God who has given me that life. And this is where we as believers must end up if we are going to find spiritual success, if we are going to be in a place of spiritual rest. And what it comes down to, simply put, is putting to death self. Dying to self. Setting yourself aside and elevating God, believing God's word, investing in God's promises. And it is this that we seek to understand this evening from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We begin in verse 10, and the Bible says this. Paul speaking, uh, we're very much into context here, right? He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. You notice there I added an asterisk um, to care and careful. Um, that's not original in our Bibles. Uh, I added that, and that's simply because I wanted you to see that both care and careful were the same Greek word. Normally I put them in order, right? So the first yellow word is the first Greek word, and the second yellow word is the second Greek word. But in this case, the, both care and careful are the same Greek word, so I, I indicated that there. I hope that doesn't throw you off too much. Now, just like last time in verses 8 and 9, at a tertiary glance, it would seem as though there's very little uh, of an effective link between what we've already learned and what Paul is saying now. Uh, it would feel in one sense as if verses 6 and 7 and then verse 8, 9, and then now verses 10 through 13 are in fact different exhortations all together. And there is little doubt that Paul is transitioning to a new and a final line of thinking here in verse 10. He begins to speak here in verse 10 about their care for him, about their love for him. And we'll see uh, as we finish up Philippians next week in verses 14 and following uh, that Paul is transitioning to a discussion directly about the nature of the, the Philippians and their physical, material care for his needs. So we do see that transition. But just as we saw last time, where this seemingly independent thought truly carried with it a contextual and a linguistic interconnection with that which had come before, so too we see this in verses 10 through 13. Paul is transitioning to some comments on the financial support which the church has given to him, but in doing so, he connects his need for these things to what he has already taught about. He tells them first of his great rejoicing in the Lord that their care for him has at the last flourished again. It has been some time since we began this series and considered the concept surrounding the relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. But it seems as though, as we'll see in verse 16 next time, that the church of Philippi had been used by God 
to meet Paul's needs throughout the course of his ministry in a very unique manner, in a manner that can be stated of no other church that Paul had visited. And we'll think through that a little bit more next week. But what we also see here is, by implication at least, is that there seemed to be a time of lapse when Paul ceased to receive what he had typically received from the church of Philippi. There, where Paul had not received that which had commonly come from the church. And Paul will clarify in a moment that he's not rebuking them for this, for they, nor any church per se, seemed to actually have any direct obligation for him. You know, today we have uh, missionaries and they come and, and, and churches will, uh, as, as these missionaries are on deputation, churches will commit to them a certain amount of money and the missionaries will go based upon the financial safety net of all of those churches. Well, we don't see any record of Paul having anything like that. We know that he and uh, Barnabas at first, then he and Silas were presumably sent out, if we want to call it that, from the church at Antioch, that they are the ones that ordained him, that laid hands on him, and that commissioned him to go. But we don't necessarily see any record of, of any necessary, necessarily any support. We know that there were any number of times within Paul's ministry where he was uh, in a measure of self-sustenance, a tent maker and such, so we don't see any record of a regular flow of support for Paul and for those that were with Paul as they were going from place to place to place, except that we recognize that in, in general it was an expectation among most ministers that they were cared for by the people unto whom they were ministering. Paul, of course, in the church of Corinth said, I refuse this specifically so that you'd have nothing to, to uh, uh, distract you from the gospel, right? So Paul had refused that from time to time, but acknowledged in full that he had every right to expect it. And the situation here is that there seems to have been the, a, a consistent record of the Philippian church blessing Paul materially, but that it would seem that there was a lapse in that care for some time. And Paul does not necessarily attribute this to some neglect, but as he says here, ye lacked opportunity. Now, we don't exactly know what this means, that they lacked opportunity, that word meaning lacking the opportune moment or the right season or the right time. Perhaps it was something out of their control. Maybe it was because of Paul's arrest. It took a little while to find him, figure out where he was, where they were keeping him, uh, not being able to help him as they tried to track him down. He fell off the grid for a while. Um, maybe that was it. Maybe there was a time where the church's situation necessitated. Maybe they, um, they, they had a, a time of tremendous persecution and they were not able to, they had to pour all of their resources into their own body. Maybe uh, there were several people that had uh, tremendous financial needs in their body. Maybe uh, um, there was uh, some elements of, of, of Paphroditus in, of informing them that there was some need in Philippi that, that stripped all of their resources for a time being. That's possible as well. Or maybe it is that the reason why they lacked opportunity is because they had become distracted. Maybe it is that their disunity and these murmurings and these disputings of which Paul is speaking of within the scope of this book um, caused a distraction not only on an individual level or even a corporate level, but that the church had lacked the opportunity because they were too busy dealing with their own interpersonal issues to be able to look out and to meet the needs of those who were beyond their own context. We don't know. These are just speculations. But Paul's rejoicing was renewed, he tells them, 
when their thoughts for him were revived and their care for him was revived. No doubt that being at the time when the church sent Epaphroditus both to give Paul their gift and to minister unto him for a time. Epaphroditus shows up. He gives, them, uh, he, he gives Paul this, this material provision, tells Paul what's going on in Philippi. Of course, Paul's burden is then uh, uh, heavy for the church and sends Epaphroditus back in time with this message. And this verse sets the stage for Paul's reminder to them regarding giving. That's what we'll consider next time. But Paul takes a moment to interject his reaction and thinking in relation to the lack which he experienced, not perhaps just during this time, but likely at the very least during this time when they were not supplying his need. So he rejoices, he says, that their care has flourished again. He says, wherein you were also careful at another time, but ye lacked opportunity. So it's not that you stopped caring for me, but you lacked opportunity to materially bless me in this way, right? He acknowledges that they didn't stop thinking about him or didn't stop praying for him or didn't stop loving him, only that they stopped giving to him for a time. And then he, he qualifies this statement in verse 11. And he says, not that I speak in respect of want, that word want there meaning poverty or lack, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul makes it clear that he's not speaking from, uh, with respect to, to lack. In other words, he's not saying that he felt this lack so deeply and so keenly that he's rejoicing that they're giving to him again specifically because he was so impoverished. And he'll again clarify this in verses 14 and following that the, his, his, his joy in their giving was not rooted in the fact that he was getting. It was rooted in the fact that they were giving. May I say that again? Paul's joy was not rooted in, uh, in their giving, was not rooted in the fact that he was getting, but that they were giving. And again, we'll understand more of why that is next week. So Paul's qualifying here. He says, don't get me wrong. I didn't rejoice because uh, I speak with respect of poverty. I didn't rejoice simply because I, I was impoverished or because I lacked things. For I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. The concept of poverty, the concept of lack, is a concept directly connected to whether or not a man has sufficient to meet his basic needs. We have a poverty line in this country, and the general implication of this poverty line is that a family must be above that line in order for them to operate functionally in society while having their basic needs met. Now, if we were to look at what the government considers a basic need, uh, we might have a little bit of a disagreement with that, right? But simultaneously, that's the idea of the poverty line, right? If you are below the poverty line, then the implication is that you are, are not uh, meeting the amount of money necessary, according to statistics and government and studies and uh, all of those things, to meet the basic needs of uh, uh, the number of people that you have in your family. But there's an interesting thing about this idea of poverty or this idea of lacking things, particularly necessities. And the interesting thing about that as it relates to believers is that God has promised to meet our basic needs, hasn't he? Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. The Gentiles there, the unbeliever. 
For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and the necessities of life, these things, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, and what, wherewithal you shall be clothed, these things will be added unto you. And if you have the faith to commit yourself to the hand of God in this way, the Bible says that God will take care of those basic earthly needs. I seek first the kingdom of God. God will take care of the basics for me. To this end, Paul is not saying that he ever lacked this, that which was necessary to sustain his life. He does not rejoice in this manner in the context of his impover uh, impoverishment. And notice the reason why it is that Paul is not speaking these things from a place of lack or from a place of poverty with respect to poverty. It's not because Paul was, from a material standpoint, completely and utterly provided for and abounding in all things, but rather because Paul had the utmost confidence in God to supply his needs. And this led Paul into a state of being where, regardless of how much he had or did not have, he had learned to be content. Regardless of his position materially, he had learned to be contented. That word literally meaning self-contained, having enough. And Paul elaborates on this statement in verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul acknowledges that he has experienced both tremendous humility of circumstances, that word abased there meaning to be depressed or to be brought low or to be humbled, and he has, ex uh, and he has uh, um, experienced tremendous abundance of circumstances, that word meaning to increase or to excel. Paul is not relating his contentment to the physical and material context within which he found himself. He's relating his contentment rather to a spiritual condition, to a place of confidence, not necessarily a place of abundance. He had truly learned in whatsoever state to be satisfied, to live with what he had or did not have in a settled state of mind and of heart. And this is the goal, Christian, that everywhere and in all things, you are able to live in a context, whether that means that you're full or you're hungry, whether it is that you're in abundance or you are in lack without this condition affecting your contentment, without this condition affecting your capacity to rest in the Lord, to be in a place of satisfaction, a place where I, by faith, am able to detach my material circumstances from my emotional state of contentment. Not because I'm a crazy person. We can't, uh, not, not because I'm a person who can't understand how my, what, what kind of a condition I'm in, not the kind of person who sits on the side of the road and is, is literally out of his mind and has no idea where he is or what he's doing, and so he's content because he is literally out of his mind. That's not what, that, that's not, we're not called to be one of those people who is able to detach psychologically ourselves from our condition so that we're content simply because we, we just, we are completely out of our minds. 
but rather content because I rest in such an intrinsic state of trust in the promises of God and his inevitable care and concern for me that my physical circumstances are unable to undermine or override the peace of God which keeps my heart and mind. And this is that emotional promised land, the place of spiritual success, the final answer to anxieties and cares and fears and depressions and such. When I rest in such confidence in the love and provision of God for me that my, mental, my, my material circumstances don't have a bearing on my emotional state anymore. That even though times of, in times of suffering or times of lack will come, I rest in full contentment knowing that God loves me, that God is in control, and that God will be faithful to me. And by the way, this is not just about material possessions, is it? We're, we're focusing on material possessions. That's Paul's focus. But what about when someone wrongs you and you're tempted to be resentful, bitter, want revenge, you uh, place them in your mind, you, 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 you cannot be satisfied because you're thinking over the things that they have done to you, the ways that they have wronged you. It is stripping from you your contentment. Can you trust that just as with the physical, so too with, the, with, with things such as the wrongs that are done to me, that, that the Lord is in control, that he has my best interest in mind, that I don't need to stew, that I don't need to rest in bitterness, that I don't need to rest in resentment, that I don't need to hold those grudges because the Lord of hosts is my Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And I can be content even in the midst of that trouble or that lack. Now, when I say what I've just said, I don't know what's going through your mind. But what goes through my mind is this, uh, the same thing that we spoke of in our message in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That it, it, it would seem as though the only people that can effectively disassociate truly effectively disassociate their, their circumstances from their feelings are sociopaths, right? People who just don't have that, that human part of them that connects their feelings to, to, to the, the surroundings that, are, that are, are around them. People who don't properly connect thoughts to circumstances. But this isn't what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about, as I, as I mentioned, we're not talking about a person who has some, we're not talking about aspiring to disconnect our hearts from, from events or disconnect our hearts from people so that I can look at suffering and not feel anything. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about becoming callous. Contentment is not callousness. Contentment is not a, 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 a loss of that, that, that natural state. I remember talking to a minister several years ago, a missionary uh, um, that came through, and um, we had... Um, let him, he was, he was staying in our house and uh, he needed to get to another church for another meeting, so we let him borrow our car at the time. And he was really blessed and effectively, he, he looked at me and said, you know, I'm so blessed by your, your care and your compassion, your love, that'll, that, that'll go away in time. And the idea being, you'll, you'll, you'll be hurt enough times 
And you'll become so jaded by ministry and life that eventually you'll stop having that care. You'll stop having that compassion. You'll stop having that concern. You'll stop having that willingness to just let some random guy who just journeyed up here to share his ministry borrow your car to, you know, to do all of these things. That, 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 that'll pass. It doesn't have to, Christian. We don't have to find contentment in callousness. We don't have to find contentment by disassociating ourselves from emotion. We simply have to put our heart where, where it matters. We have to put our heart in the hands of the one who is higher than those circumstances. We don't have to shut ourselves down. As a matter of fact, we have to open ourselves up more only to the right one, which is God. We aren't talking about lacking natural care and concern and regard for those things which are important. Now, it might look like that. When you have the peace of God that passes all understanding when everyone around you is going crazy and they say, oh, you just must not care. Well, no, that's not true. I just have faith. It's not that I don't care. It's not that I don't care when my child is hurting or, or when, when there, there are, are, are unknowns and fears. It's not that I don't care about my future uh, because I haven't put all of the safety nets in place that the world would desire me to put in place. It's not that I don't care. It's that I have a different trust. I have a different place of contentment. We're talking about having confidence that these natural cares and concerns are known, regarded, and provided for under the hand of the God who knows me and loves me and has promised to take care of me. And it is within this context that Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now Paul admits here the point. I am not conjuring up within myself a detachment to my problems. If I, in carnality, want to maintain contentment in spite of my circumstances, I must become emotionally detached from them. That's the only way I can do it in the carnal man. The only way a carnal man can detach himself emotionally from circumstances uh, or, uh, or, or to, to be content in the midst of any circumstance is to detach himself emotionally from those circumstances. I'm not securing for myself contentment through determined self-sufficiency and personal effort. I'm not securing myself contentment by putting so many safety nets in place, plan B's and plan C's and plan D's that I don't have to worry because I know I've got every, every base covered. The, this is the world's way of securing contentment. This is not God's way. What God says is that we faithfully serve the Lord. We seek first his kingdom. We faithfully trust him. And thus, regardless of the circumstances that are around me, my confidence is not shaken. Thus, my contentment is not shaken because my contentment and confidence is not resting in something that is changeable. It is resting in someone who is unchanging and faithful. And as I do so, the Lord strengthens me. Right? So it's not me. It's the Lord in me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Paul's saying here, I have found the, 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 the measure of contentment. And the measure of contentment is trusting the Lord through the strength of Christ. The Lord provides for me. The grace of God keeps my heart through the peace of God. I am left with a heart that has learned in whatsoever state it finds itself to be content. 
because the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my provision. The Lord is my protector. The Lord is my avenger. The Lord is my vindicator. The Lord is my peace. I don't have to vindicate myself. God can do that. I don't have to avenge myself. God can do that. I don't have to provide for myself in that way. We'll talk about that in a moment. God will do that. I don't have to protect myself. God will do that. Again, that doesn't mean we go off and jump off roofs and uh, uh, sit on the couch and eat potato chips rather than have a job. Doesn't mean that, you know, that's not what we're talking about, right? I seek first his kingdom. He takes care of the rest. Don't lose that first part. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You're not going to be sitting on the couch eating potato chips, wasting all of your money on frivolous things, jading the people that are around you, ignoring every responsibility, and finding it God's provision. Finding it God's protection. Finding it God's vindication. You seek first the kingdom of God. That is the confidence with which then we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. And this is the key to contentment, Christian. That in prayerful thanksgiving, I leave my requests with God that I think on these things that are virtuous and praiseworthy, and then I root my contentment in God and his promises, not in the circumstances or the things that I see, but in the things which God has promised. Now, as we consider this very popular verse, Philippians 4.13, I hope you see just how important the context is to the character of Paul's claim here. No one with any love and appreciation for um, this country and its founding is finding it easy to watch sports today because it's filled with Marxist propaganda and political gesturing. But for any of you who used to in the days when athletics had value in society as a worthy distraction from the day to day, if any of you, when you were watching those sports, would see someone, and if it's football, maybe under the eye patch or uh, maybe on a shoe or whatever it might be, you saw Philippians 4.13 written. you would often see that. Philippians 4.13 would be one of those key athlete verses. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The idea being that through Christ, they can score a lot of points. Uh, they can dominate the playing field. This verse has been used in this carnal manner, not just among athletes, for generations, with people repurposing the message of Paul to advance their self-determination unto material prosperity or success. I hope you see that that's actually the exact opposite of the context. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is actually saying here. In the context, we find Paul's point was not that through Christ he will inevitably be very uh, abundant in gain, that he will make a bunch of money, or that he will be the best in his field of expertise. As a matter of fact, extending our context back to chapter 3, Paul has already said that he left all of those things behind. He counted all of them but dung that he may win Christ, right? So he has already proclaimed that all of those things which would be gained to him, the, the uh, Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, uh, the, the glory and the honor and the value uh, of being one of the best that society had to offer in his particular field, that would be Pharisaism. He says, what things were counted gain to me, those I counted but loss for Christ. So he's already dealt with that, right? He's not trying to score the most points. He's not trying to be the best. He has already yielded that to Christ. Much to the contrary. Paul's message here is that through Christ, he is able to lack 
everything and still be content, right? That is the power. The power is not to gain. The power is to lack without being discontent. That's the context here. Paul abounded in material goods when God and God's people caused him to abound. But regardless of his abundance and regardless of his lack, and it doesn't mean he had to live in lack. There were times he will admit next week, I have all and abound because of the Philippians' generosity to him. But regardless, Paul says, I'm content because Christ hasn't changed. I'm content because Christ is still taking care of me. I'm content because Christ still has it all under control. And he has strengthened me thus to be content. And it is from this idea that we glean our application this evening. Four points of application that I'd like to draw out as we consider these concepts. Point number one. The things of this world can never offer true contentment, Christian. Know this, believe it, understand it, know it well. Let us here and now confront and break down one of the greatest lies and most effective deceits that exist in this world, particularly in a time of material plenty. Right? There are times, there are places in this world where this is not an issue. <laughs> but, but, but in our context, this is an issue. It is a doctrine of covetousness. The idea that anything in this world can actually afford me true contentment. That if only I had that job, if only I had that car, if only I didn't have that car, <laughs> if only I had that boat, if only I had that, uh, that much money, if only I was married, if only I wasn't married, if only I had children, if only I, ha I didn't have children, if only I had this color of eyes, if only I had that color of hair, if only I had freckles, if only I didn't have freckles, if only I was taller, if only I was shorter, if only my skin was darker, if only my skin was lighter, if only I had more friends, if only I had better friends, if only I was a better athlete, if only I was a better musician, if only I was smarter, if only I was better looking, then I would be content. Then I would finally be where I needed to be. Then I would be fully satisfied and this is a lie. The grass is always greener on the other side. That's a pretty good proverb. You get to the other side, and you know what? Now that side that you came from is starting to look pretty good. And you get to the top of one hill, and you see the valley on the other end, and you get down to that valley, and you're enjoying it, and then you look up at the next hill, and you say, hmm, wonder what's on the, side of, uh, what's on the other side of that hill. The things of this world can never afford true contentment. And this is a faith lesson that's not easy to learn. And the reason why it's not easy to learn, Christian, is because the only way to truly definitively prove the things that of this world don't satisfy is to have them and realize when you have them all that you're not satisfied. When we, and, and this becomes a problem because very few of us in this room, at least, are, are ever going to have everything, are ever going to be able to prove that point. And to this end, what, what we have to do is we have to listen to others. We have to open our eyes to wisdom. You can do this in a very pragmatic way. You can read up on wealthy people. You can consider the lives of the rich and the famous. Determine for yourselves if there's true contentment there. Don't just read the tabloids. Don't just look at their Instagram page. This is their persona, right? Why is it that the lives of the rich and the famous are filled with drug abuse, alcohol abuse? Why is it that the lives of the rich and the famous are filled with criminal activity, 
theft, immorality. Why is it that the lives of the rich and famous are filled with divorces and remarriages? Why is it that the lives of the rich and the famous, particularly as we think of Hollywood and the music industry, are filled with child abuse? See, because money, fame, earthly achievement can't buy contentment. But why go to them to find this pragmatic and anecdotal evidence of the fact that these things don't buy contentment when we have a divinely inspired source, a record of a man who was not only inspired by God to write these words, but was also one of the wealthiest and most accomplished humans to ever walk the earth. Now, I'm not a wealthy man, I'm not a famous man, and I'm not an accomplished man. Looking to me as an authority on the absolute inability of these things to afford contentment is akin to asking me what it's like to be pregnant. I can only tell you what I've seen and, I've, and I can only tell you what I've heard because I'm never going to experience it for myself. So for me to stand up here and tell you that, that riches will never buy you happiness, that fame will never buy you happiness, that accomplishment will never buy you happiness, I have none of those things. I cannot tell you from experience. But King Solomon can, can't he? King Solomon, one of the wealthiest, grandest kings who ever lived, a king who was personally determined to see if any of the claims of happiness and contentment in the things of this life would, would, would flesh out. And he came back to us in Ecclesiastes with his conclusions. Of course, I can't give you all of Ecclesiastes. Fortunately for you, I've preached through the book. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, Solomon writes this. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy every pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. So what Solomon's saying is this. I was given all of this wisdom, I was given all of this knowledge, and I went to the very depths of knowledge to see what was there, to see what every earthly claim uh, under the sun, to see what every experience of every culture was, to see if I was missing out on anything that anyone else had found. He said, and I began to do this by, by, by throwing myself into the things of this world, into mirth, to enjoy every pleasure. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under heaven 
all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in mine house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon had the resources and abilities at his disposal to seek contentment in every imaginable way. Physical pleasures, material pleasures, personal accomplishments, personal learning. And he says in verse 10 that his heart rejoiced in his labor and his accomplishments. That there was a momentary pleasure found in every one of those things. But then he stepped back expecting his experiences and his pleasures and, acknowledge, and, and his knowledge to afford him a measure of lasting satisfaction. And what did he find? That it was actually all vanity, emptiness, and vexation of spirit, frustration. It afforded him, none of those things afforded him satisfaction. None of those things afforded him contentment. Even his legacy, he would go on to say. The idea that he's at least building for something, right? To, to leave a legacy, to leave an impact upon the earth so that, so that uh, he would make the world a better place. He contemplated that and he said, you know what? Even my legacy, I'm going to leave it to someone else who's less wise than me and that fool's going to ruin it all. So what good is it? Even, even the greatest things that I could build, some fool's going to come along and he's going to ruin everything. And so even my legacy's going to be gone. Even all the good that I sought to do for this world is going to be undermined by some fool in the future. So there's no, there's no satisfaction in it. And this leads us to our second point before we chart the course to the solution. Point number one, the things of this world can never offer true contentment. Point number two, the human heart can never produce a state of true contentment. I was talking to a man, I told many of you this, I think it was Tuesday night, I was talking to a man at the jail a couple of weeks ago, big old guy, tattoo, shaved head. Comes in, sits down in front of me. I say, what can I do for you? And he just immediately begins to weep. He told me his life was a wreck. And his frustration was not so much the results. Amazingly enough, it wasn't so much that he was thrown in prison because his wife of three months had falsely accused him because they had both started doing drugs again. And they got into a fight and women in this culture know full well that they can weaponize the police against men that have a record, and it happens quite often, and so they weaponize their anger through the police in order to put a man back in jail, and I don't know whether he's guilty or innocent, of course. 
But he, he said, it's not so much that that frustrated him. He said, what frustrated me was that I wasn't man enough when I saw what was happening to say, no, we're getting rid of these drugs, we're getting our minds right, and we're stepping up and we're going we're gonna to change this. He says, I wasn't man enough to change what I saw was happening. And it was neat because what he just admitted was that he didn't have enough, he didn't have what was necessary inside of him to do what he knew he needed and wanted to do. And I thought, this is great. This is exactly where a man needs to be. So I gave him the gospel, pointing him to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Fifteen minutes later, I told him that his need was, for allow, uh, was to allow Christ to do the work in him. And his response to me was, no, that's okay. I'm good with Jesus. I think I just need to learn to love myself more. I've got Jesus covered. I just need to love myself more. And I was so very grieved because his human heart will never give to that man or any man what he's seeking, the capacity, the ability to find in himself empowerment or contentment. It will not the human heart will not because the human heart cannot, Christian. And this is where we find that wisdom of Philippians 4.13. It is not that a state of contentment is unattainable. Only that the impulse, the, 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 the compulsion, the capacity to find that state of contentment in my heart, apart from the creator, is futile. I can do it. My heart can find contentment, but not without the strength of Christ, not without the context of Christ, not without faith. And, I, and, and, and when I have that faith, I will find my, my heart will rest in contentment and not just when I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, not just when all of my accomplishments rest before me, not just when all is going well. I will find that contentment in infirmity, in distress, in persecution, in abundance, or in lack. But only through Christ which strengthens me. Only as I seek unto a life in the context of God's revelation and design. Only as I do it in faith. Only as I connect myself to the true light that lights every man. Only as I live, not for the temporal, but, as the, uh, but for the eternal. Only as I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this brings us to our third point. True contentment is given to man by God. As the wise King Solomon continued through his contemplations in Ecclesiastes, we begin to see a juxtaposition between the things that Solomon achieved and amassed in his life and the context within which he had these things. Solomon began to realize that it wasn't what he had or what he had accomplished that decided his emotional state, but how he interpreted what he had. As Solomon regarded his blessed blessings directly from God, as Solomon saw the things that he had as an extension of God's goodness to him, he began to find in those things the pleasure that they and of themselves could never, never gave him. He began to find in them the contentment that he had always sought in them themselves in 
the fact that God had given them to him. And so Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 9 through 13, What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? What profit is, is, is the labor that a man labors? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is, a, it is the gift of God. Solomon began to realize that contentment did not come from the things, the labor, the effort, the accomplishment, but rather contentment came from an acknowledgement of the God who has given him the things who has given him the health, the mind, the capacity, that the things of this life are gifts from God and that in this goodness of the Lord there is rejoicing. The joy of the day of thanksgiving is not when you look at the table and you see the abundance. It's when you look at the table, you see the abundance, and you recognize that this is a gift from God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All right? That is, is the joy of that Thanksgiving day. It is that you are sitting here with your family in safety and in warmth and in comfort with, with the abundance uh, before you, and you say, these are God's blessings. And in that, there is contentment. In that, there is satisfaction. That true good in this life is that which flows from the love and the goodness and the mercy of God. And conversely, if what I have, if what I am or what I can do is from the Lord, then regardless of its worth or its merit in the human or the material standards of this life, it is, in fact, good. It is good. And thus, I can be content in it. And I will be content in it. And this leads us to our final point. True contentment is rooted in trust and obedience. Solomon continues through his contemplation, speaking to his futile attempts at contentment in this life through self-gratification. His rejoicing and joy in those times when he found contentment through a fundamental change in perspective that rooted the things of this life in the context of God's goodness. Solomon realized that when he did things God's way and those things which were compatible with God's way rested before him, that when he was able to enjoy the things of this life in virtue as gifts from God, he found contentment. And this led him to a notable conclusion in the final two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Verses 13 and 14, Solomon wrote, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Trust and obey. Right? Now, Solomon says fear and obey. That's fine. It's trust and obey. Know that God will bring these works into judgment. 
know that God is over all, and it is thus my privilege to identify the Lord's will and to rejoice in it. Now, this doesn't mean that the poor man must say, well, I'm poor, so God wants me to be poor. I guess I'll have no ambition and I'll stay poor forever. No, wrong lesson. But rather, well, in this season of life, I lack this world's goods, but I've been faithful to the Lord. I've been faithful to his commissions. I've been faithful to integrity. I've been faithful to work ethic. I get up in the morning. I work hard. I go to bed at night. I get rest. I treat others with integrity. I treat others with fairness. I'm honest before men. And in this season, God has ordained that I lack this world's goods. God will take care of me through this time, and I will be content in this thing. And maybe, if God so wills it, there will be something else for me in the future. And I want it, but I only want it if God wants it for me. And until then, I will maintain contentment. Do you see the difference? We're not reserving ourselves to some measure of suffering. We are not reserving ourselves to some measure of persecution. There is no merit or virtue in being persecuted or suffering. The merit or the virtue is when you are doing what the Lord would have for you, and through those things you find persecution or suffering, and yet you are content. That's the virtue. And this calls us, of course, to examine ourselves. We began this journey several messages ago seeking divine answers to anxiety, seeing it first in the call to take our minds off of ourselves and then in this threefold determination to pray in thanksgiving, making my request be made known unto God, leaving my fears and sorrows and concerns with him, then becoming the gatekeeper of my own thinking and directing my mind intentionally toward the things of virtue and those things which are praiseworthy. And then finally today to live in a manner whereby regardless of my physical state, I trust and obey, and whatever context this calls me into, I will be content in that context, trusting that it is what God would have for me. So the question is, how are you doing? Are you content? Or have you allowed the things of this life, the empty promises rooted in vanity and in self, rooted in the things of this world, aspirations unto material wealth or personal fame or glory or, or, or whatever it is that is the avatar of contentment in your mind. We all have one. Have you allowed the lies of this world to strip you of your contentment? Or maybe your problem isn't with your station in life. Maybe your problem is with the unchangeables of life. How you look, the family you're in, your natural abilities or the lack thereof, to keep you in a place of discontentment as you compare yourself to others who seem to have those natural advantages. And some would say, I realize that God made me this way, but that doesn't help. In fact, that makes it worse because that means God knew that I would look this way. God knew that I would have this deficiency. And that makes me angry at him because he knew it, because I know he designed it. And I've heard that a lot. But remember, Contentment is not about coming to terms with where you are in this life, what you have or don't have in this life, or how you have been made. Contentment is not just you looking in a mirror and saying, this is who I am. That's not contentment. Contentment is about coming to the realization that as you have sought to follow God and to serve him faithfully, a good God has made you what you are, has put you where you are, and has given you what you have because he knows better than you do what is best for you and how you can best glorify him. And what if that thing 
is actually positioning you not to be the most famous, not to be the most rich, not to be the most accomplished, but what if that thing is positioning you to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What if that thing is the thing that is needed to keep you humble, to keep you reserved, to keep you where you need to be in order to be for him what he wants you to be? Can you trust that and be content? This is why Paul could rejoice even in persecutions. Because he knew that God was doing what was necessary to conform him to Christ's image. And we know this from 2 Corinthians. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He besought the Lord thrice that it would depart from him. And God said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, I will rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will be content because God has put this into my life to make me better for him. What would life be without that thorn in the flesh, Paul might wonder. Well, here's the thing. Paul doesn't need to wonder because God has done it for a reason. And Paul can trust that that reason is sound because he's trusting and obeying. And this call rests upon us today as well. Are you trusting and obeying? Have you found personal contentment? Can you rest in what God has chosen for you, rejoicing in his goodness and trusting his love? Or are you struggling? Do you need to refactor your thinking in these ways? Does there need to be a reconfiguration of your priorities and your expectations in this life to realign you with who God has made you, where God has placed you in this season. Remember, it's not necessarily that this is life, but in this season, as you have sought first the kingdom of God, God has brought these things to pass. Or maybe you're one who has not been seeking first the kingdom of God. Maybe the circumstances you're in are not that of God's ordination, they're of your own doing. Maybe it's because you have been seeking unto self. Maybe it's because you have pursued selfishness and now you find yourself in a mess. And it's time to start seeking first the kingdom of God. Maybe it's because you've been apathetic and lazy and selfish that now you find yourself in a place where you do lack. And it's not because God has ordained your lack. It's because you have no faith to trust him to provide for you. Let tonight be a reconfiguration, an opportunity to take the concepts of contentment and adjust where you find your contentment. Find it in the Lord. You can do it through Christ who strengtheneth you if you're a born-again believer in this room. But the question is, are you going to submit? Are you going to seek first his kingdom? Are you going to trust and obey? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.